Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine. Hosted by me, Danielle Robay, And me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. I am so excited about this podcast, The Bright Side. You guys are giving people a chance to shine a light on their lives, shine a light on a little advice that they want to share. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side. Welcome to Noble Blood, a production of iHeart Radio and Grim and Mild from Aaron Mankey. Listener discretion advised. Hello, this is Dana Schwartz, and this is a very special episode of Noble Blood because I am joined by my very good friend, the incredibly talented, truly brilliant writer, Jennifer Wright. Dana, I am so happy to be here. Uh, Jennifer, you are uh, just an incredible history writer. You've written a few of my favorite books, uh, Get Well Soon, which is a book about... uh, History's worst plagues and the heroes that fought them. Really? I was going to say a very topical pre-pandemic subject. Yeah, in retrospect, I should not have leaked the Wuhan virus. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it was it too help. much viral marketing yeah. on my part. I was going to say, but it did probably boost book sales. Yeah. Also, just to be clear, that was that was a joke. That's not how anything actually <laughs> happened. Jennifer is a lovely human being who is not involved in anything COVID-related. Mm-hmm. You wrote the book, uh, It Ended Badly, 13 of the Worst Historical Breakups. Yes. Uh, one of my favorite books because it covers uh, one of my favorite historical couples, Caroline Lamb and Lord Byron. I was going to say, I remember years ago talking about Carolyn Lamb chopping off her pubic hair and sending it to Lord Byron to try to win him back. It's that move. What I relate to so profoundly is when you're so in love with someone who clearly is not interested, but you're like, you keep having to up the stakes to get their attention. You've got to go for broke. You've got to chop off all your pubic hair and send it to them in the mail. It's the equivalent. If I could show you some of the emails I wrote to like a boy when I was like 22 who stopped responding to my texts. Like some of the emails that I wrote are just like, I never want to see them again. I hope they're the equivalent of pubic hair. Oh, I wrote like multi-thousand word emails to people I'd just broken up with. Just trying to like break down every part of our relationship, but also get back together. Why did I think that would work? Yeah, that's that's always the secret is they want a well-written email. That's what was missing. they want a really long email. (laughs) That is the equivalent. But I'm so excited. Your most recent book is uh, Madame Restelle. Mm -hmm. And it's a story that, to be totally honest, I had no idea what it was, who she was until I started talking to you. Well, that is because I think she has been very deliberately written out of history. She was a very successful female abortionist operating in mid-19th century America. And when she started performing abortions in the 1830s, it was still classified as a misdemeanor if you performed the abortion before the fourth or fifth month. And by the end of Madame Restelle's life in the 1870s, the Comstock Act had passed, and the Comstock Act forbade sending anything obscene through the mail, which included, say, written descriptions of birth control or abortion, to say nothing of actually sending birth control medication through the mail. And sadly, that is something we are seeing revive now today. Another sadly topical book. You're like the history Cassandra at this point. Yeah, I swear the next one is just going to be about parties or yeah. something. Like, it's going to be about how everybody is nice and gets along. <laughs> that would be so nice. Yeah. 
Can you, I know we're going to move on to the subject of, uh, the main subject of the podcast, which is a fascinating figure of uh, the French Versailles culture. But can you tell us a little bit about Madame Restelle, even oh, though she's abs- not I a noble? can tell everything about Madame yeah. Restelle. There is indeed a whole book about it. But uh, yeah, Madame Restelle began her life at, in Britain. She was born Anne Trow in 1812 in Painswick, England. And uh, she came from a very large, very poor family. She was a maid of all work for a butcher, which meant that she would have been doing pretty backbreaking work, doing things like fetching any water from the well and dumping out the chamber pots and beating all the rugs to make sure they were clean and cleaning out the fireplaces. And uh, that was also a time where if you were a maid, you were open to a horrifying number of sexual advances from any man in the house. Jonathan Swift uh, actually wrote advice to maids saying that you have to beware of the eldest son because you're going to get nothing from him but a big belly and the clap. Uh, at least you can get money from the master of yeah. the house. So uh, I think that may have been one of the reasons that Madame Restelle always worked on a sliding scale when she charged people later and uh, why she tended to charge servants less. And in when she was 16, she married a tailor. The tailor was unfortunately an alcoholic. Is this where she got the name Restelle? Oh, no. Uh, the tailor was unfortunately an alcoholic. And uh, she took over his work very quickly. And this is a running trend in Madame Restelle's life. She kind of meets a man, sees how he does his job, and then figures out how to do it better. Yeah. But uh, she convinced him to move with their newborn daughter to America so they could become rich. Then she gets to the Lower East Side. Her alcoholic husband dies almost immediately. And she is now a single mother on the Lower East Side of New York. If you've seen Gangs of New York, that's not accurate. But keep that picture in your mind. That's where Madame Restelle is. And I I remember a detail in your book that seamstresses was like, they were literally a dime Dime a dozen. dozen. Yes, Uh, yes. It made me understand. I've read so many novels from this period where the main character will be like, I have thousands of dollars of debts to my dressmaker. And I've always thought, then why is your dressmaker still making you dresses? She should have cut you off ages ago. It's because there are so many of them that you have to operate on even the hope of payment. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, it's a bad time. Prostitution is everywhere because working in a factory means working 16-hour days. And if you have a child, then you don't have enough money for childcare. The factory doesn't pay enough. Women would drug their children with laudanum so they would sleep while they were at work. In one especially horrifying Dickensian note that I found, there was a woman who was a single mother, worked in a factory, had a four-year-old and a newborn, and she told the four-year-old to take care of the newborn while she was at work. And when she came back, the four-year-old, and if you have a toddler, you can imagine how proudly the four-year-old would say this, said that the baby had been crying, but they had stopped him. And the mother praised him, and then she went to see the baby, and he had stopped him by beating him over the head with a hammer until he died. So, uh, so this was a terrible time to be a single mother or have an unplanned pregnancy of any kind. And Madame Restelle really might have fallen into this situation very easily, but she lived down the street from a pill compounder named Dr. Evans. And Dr. Evans provided all manner of pills. There was no oversight. You could smash any herbs together and say, this will cure your headaches. Yeah. Or this will cure insomnia. It might. It might. Give it a shot. What have you got to lose? Yeah. Um, 
And uh, he probably also provided birth control pills. But Madame Restelle started making what must have been incredibly effective birth control pills. She was using ingredients like tansy oil and turpentine and mixing them together. And those are unbelievably dangerous ingredients. You should never, ever use them. Yeah, like paint thinner in your body. Like paint thinner, yes. Um, Unfortunately, they still do get used in the 1970s. Doctors said turpentine is a harrowing motif in do-it-yourself abortions. (laughs) So uh, these are things that will work. They will just also kill their female patients. And uh, Madame Russell is pretty remarkable in that she mixed them together without killing people. People in the neighborhood started saying that they had had five abortions this way and they were coming back for more. She could also perform surgical abortions with a sharpened piece of whalebone. Now, if her hand slipped, she could puncture a woman's bladder and kill her. Another amazing thing is that despite a lot of people trying very hard to prove that Madame Restell was killing people, there are no records that indicate that she ever killed a patient. Oh, my so, God. Uh, so, Madame Restelle must have had a very steady hand and a real genius for mixing ingredients. Yeah. Around this time, she met her second husband, Charles Lohman, who was a printer, and he was really familiar with the bombastic personalities that advertised in newspapers. And together, they came up with this persona of Madame Restelle. And they talked about how she was French and her grandmother was a famous midwife and she had been training in Paris and bringing her skills to America. And this was a time when medical innovation was happening in Paris in a way it wasn't in America. So this was a great persona to craft. It's glamorous and now. It's, it's glamorous. If anyone came and said that yep. her grandma was a famous Parisian midwife, exactly. Yeah. It sounds sexy, too. Yeah. People thought that French people were more sexually sophisticated in addition to having better medical skills. Yeah. So uh, that's how this persona of Madame Restelle was born. It's and interesting. that's Someone what like brought in rich people. Dr. Muter, who, this mm-hmm. is my, my anatomy research shelf down there. Mm-hmm. Uh, Dr. Muter, who was, has, if you've been to Philadelphia, there's a Muter Museum. Oh, I'm dying to go. Me too. We should go together. We should go. Um, Girl strip. He trained for in French surgeries. Mm-hmm. That's where all the, the surgery was was. Exactly, yes. Go Um, to France. Learn things. One of the reasons that they drove female midwives out of business in America is because they started trying to open up schools for doctors in America, (laughs) but they were terrible. You couldn't walk the hospitals the way you could in France. Yeah. So uh, they would rent out a lecture hall, charge young men like $50, and in six months, if you showed up to most of the classes where you would never see an actual patient, usually there was just like a skeleton or a box of bones. <laughs> At the end, you got your diploma. Sure. And as a result, it's estimated that in the mid-1800s, there were suddenly four times as many doctors as towns needed. And they had to find a new source of income. And that is one of the reasons that they started pushing in on midwives' trade. Wow. And I I do love, I think, like the interest of like when midwifery mm-hmm. became obstetrics and like yep. more male dominated mm-hmm. doctors is fascinating to me because I love the story of how Princess Charlotte of Wales um in the early 1800s who's a character in immortality mm-hmm. but she in real life 
uh, was pregnant, mm -hmm. and it was very fashionable to have a male doctor at this time. They were worse. You know they were they worse. They were worse. Right? There, and, um, and she died. There was an average of one death in 200 with a yeah. female midwife in this period, and it was 10 to 20 times higher if you had a male doctor. They were so much worse. They were so much worse, and she died, and it was just f considered fashionable to have a male doctor because she was a princess, so she had to do it. Yep. And she died, and it was bad. Yep, and the American Medical Society made such a big deal out of how midwives are barbaric relics. And of course, midwives' hands were actually clean, whereas doctors yeah. were digging them into a corpse and then in pulling them out and then sticking them into a woman's birth canal. Yeah, they would treat an infected abscess and then be like, perfect, put inside oh, a woman. Oh my gosh, the one that killed me the most. I'm sorry, I know we have to talk about nobility because this is noble blood. But please. But, um, after Ignaz Semmelweis, oh, so God bless him God forever. bless him. May he rest in peace. But after Ignaz Semmelweis suggested that maybe the reason so many women are dying are because doctors need to wash their hands. And by the way, he tested this. He found out that it worked. He could bring the death rate for female patients down on par with midwives Jennifer, when they wash their hands. Jennifer, that's crazy talk. Uh, and Charles Miggs replied that this was absurd because... <laughs> Quote, unquote, doctors are gentlemen, and gentlemen have clean hands. <laughs> it's the ego on them. I'm so furious about it. I'm furious 200 years later. About, about how many women had unnecessary deaths. Deaths, yeah. Um, well, speaking of women. Fun day for birth control in America, <laughs> you guys. Yeah, luckily that it's not something we need to deal with anymore. Oof, Yeah. Uh, but if we're talking about women in positions of power that I think sometimes people think are anachronistic, like mm -hmm. women didn't have any power influence mm -hmm. in the 1700s, mm -hmm. one of my favorite figures, and I think a figure that you love, is Madame de Pompadour. <gasps> I am so happy to talk about her, um, known as the pretty prime minister at the court of Versailles. So for someone who, who has no idea who she is, outside perhaps of a single Doctor Who episode. There is a Doctor Who episode. A really good one. It's the only one I've seen. It's a good one. <laughs> yeah, it's nice. Yeah, yeah, it's sweet. I don't like the robots. I like the <laughs> part where it's just about Madame Pompadour. <laughs> that is also kind of my... I. I've watched a little bit more Doctor Who. I've fallen off a little bit. I like when it's like historical characters and fun. I like when they meet Vincent Van Gogh. Yeah. I'd like it if it was just some people meeting Vincent Van Gogh. I love the Vincent. I love when they just meet historical figures. Me too. I don't need a distant planet. No, I don't. I, I'm sorry. I, I know people love it. I, it's a good show. I get it. I know it's very special to people. Yeah. <laughs> but there's a wonderful Madame de Pompadour episode. But for people who maybe have only seen that episode or nothing, who was the pretty prime minister? Um, uh, the pretty prime minister was Louis XV's mistress. And she was one of the most famous mistresses of this era because uh, she was the mistress at Versailles for about 20 years. Which, and when, when you say mistress, you mean the official position. I mean the official mistress, yes. For context, in case you're, you're less familiar... It, mistress in this case doesn't just mean, you know, was having a sexual relationship with a king. Mm -hmm. Mistress was a court position. Mistress was a court position, and it was a very important court position. The queen was really just there to provide children. Louis XV had a very lovely wife, Queen Marie Lysinka. 
Uh, she produced children, but she was also very religious. She was very retiring. Um, she did gamble, but she played a game that nobody liked. <laughs> so uh, she had a hard time getting people to play her very old-fashioned gambling game it's with like her. It's like how Ian doesn't like to play Scrabble with me because I always beat him. Oh, hurtful. I know. Oh, Daniel and I play Scrabble every night. That sounds so nice. We do. We watch a movie. We play Scrabble. I, it's I, a lovely, I would love that. It's a lovely way to end the day. Ian has taken to refusing to play Scrabble with me because I'll be because like 100 so points up and he'll be like, I'm done with it. Well, I mean, you've got to know all the two-letter you words. It's Za-Ki-Chi. Like, you those are your winners, guys. Well, that's it. I play for strategy. He plays for showmanship. Quad. Q-A-T. Yeah. Yeah, work that in. But, but uh, anyhow, Queen Marie out there trying to get people to play Slettlers of Catan with her every <laughs> night. And uh, Louis XV had a bit of a more bon vivant personality. He was prone to boredom. But he was also somebody who really enjoyed consistency. I think something that you see with Louis XV is that Madame Pompadour essentially became his wife. I mean, mistress for 20 years and then, like, friend to the king <gasps> that for years after. That is fascinating to me. So uh, can we begin with the beginning of yes, her life? Yes, of course. Okay. Um, Madame Pompadour, and it's something that differed her a lot from other royal mistresses, was born to the bourgeois class. So she was wealthy, but not noble. She was wealthy, but not noble. Her father was a financier who had been exiled for fraud. Her mother um, had a sparkling personality, which, reading between the lines on St. Nancy Mitford's biography <laughs> of Madame Pompadour, meant that her mother was sleeping around a lot. Yeah. A lot of people um, felt that they could not receive Madame Pompadour's mother. Sure. But... Uh, Everybody loved Madame Pompadour pretty much from birth. Um, her mother's special friend uh, helped finance her education. She spent two years with nuns who said that she charmed everyone at the Abbey. She was just such a delight. Um, and then she returned home and she was educated in all the arts of the day, in art, in dancing, in uh, playing music. She was a successful harpist. So... Uh, she was this delightful person, and everybody was also really nice to her, which is one of the reasons that I really enjoy reading her story. Because usually you read stories about these people, and it will be a story about, like, she was first raped by her stepfather <laughs> at the age of seven. After that, her mother died of smallpox. And... Madame Pompadour is just hanging out with her um, somewhat licentious extended family. Playing the harp. Plenty of money playing the harp. Everybody loves her. Everybody says she's great. Her mother's special friend, like, dotes on her and talks about how wonderful she is. And uh, when she was about 10, her mother took her to visit a fortune teller. And the fortune teller told her that she was not going to be queen, but almost queen. She she freaking nailed it. She nailed it. Madame Pompadour sent her money much later in life <laughs> for nailing it so well. And everyone in her family started calling her Reynette, which means little queen. Aww. And Madame Pompadour fully, fully believed this. Uh, Reynette is a great name for a cat. It is, yeah. Uh, she fully believed that, all right, I'm going to be the royal mistress. We are going to do it. And her family was kind of on board with that. It kind of seemed like, yeah, sure, you're going to be an astronaut. Do it. Why not? Why not? Now, at the time, bourgeois women weren't royal mistresses. Sure. Uh, the king would select somebody from court. And court had become 
unbelievably important under the reign of Louis XIV. Yeah. Louis the Fourteenth, because nobles had been feuding so much and for so long that. Louis XIV, Louis the Fourteenth, really figured out, all right, you keep them all at court. You give them an endless round of pleasure and you gamify every aspect of their lives. There was a special bow at court for women who had a good cook. <laughs> um, so I guarantee you, if there were like that many little things I could win on, as somebody who thinks of themselves as only mildly competitive, mm -hmm. I would need to have the best cook. It would become like a dominating thought that I had on a day-to-day -day basis. When your child fights sleep, it can feel like a battle you'll never win. Imagine a bedtime routine you all look forward to, where you cuddle in and let the stress of the day melt away. Welcome to Sleep Tight Stories, a calming weekly podcast that brings bedtime stories, cuddles, and comfort to families worldwide. The stories are quirky, relatable, and spark wonder without overstimulation, so listeners can fall asleep and stay asleep. Each episode is narrated by me, Cheryl McLeod, a second grade teacher, and written by my husband, Clark, an eternal second grader at heart. Tune in tonight and bond over a story before drifting off to sleep. Make bedtime the sweetest part of your day. Sleep Tight Stories. Listen to Sleep Tight Stories on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Parents, ready to discover a new educational and interactive podcast for kids? Join Stories for Kids by Lingo Kids, where episodes are packed with fun activities. Right, Elliot? Oh, yes! We learned how to recycle at the beach. That was great fun. Callie, what do you say? It was. And that time when we did the science experiment and Billy made raisins dance. That is so cool, Billy. He did. <laughs> Not to mention when a certain Elliot took up swimming classes with Lisa. That was me. <laughs> Bet you can't catch me. I'm going to get you. All this fun and more in our Stories for Kids. Lingo Kids Stories for Kids is now available on StoryButton, the kid-friendly device for screenless podcast listening. Listen to Stories for Kids on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. So everybody was gathered at court. And it was an incredibly ritualized society. It was a society where, you know, every tiny move could be interpreted the wrong way. And it was really thought that if you just grew up in wealthy Parisian society, you could never understand the rules of this world. But uh, Madame Pompadour, you know, married a very nice wealthy man. Her mother's, I don't want to say stepfather, I keep calling him special friend. Special friend, yeah. Which, okay, her mother's special friend helped arrange the marriage. Yeah. And it was... A young man who had not wanted to marry, he definitely didn't like the idea of marrying this woman who had kind of a vaguely scandalous family. Yeah. And supposedly 
the first day he met her, he fell completely in love with her. Um, and this was actually really hard for Madame Pompadour because she made it clear to him that she was going to leave him when she got an opportunity to sleep with the king. Aww. And she wrote about how actually it's very hard to be the beloved in a relationship with somebody that you are not in love with. Yeah. Because, and I think that's interesting. We don't, we hear a lot about the pain of unrequited love. But we don't hear about the kind of day-to-day discomfort of being the object of unrequited love, especially when you are in a marriage with that person. It's very sweet that she let him know up front. Um, I think he thought she was joking. <laughs> I think he did not think that this was ever actually going to happen. Yeah, he's like, okay, sweetheart. Yeah, of course. Yes, when you meet an astronaut, yes, that's, it was like I am okay. She had a You're hall going pass off with George Clooney. Yeah, she had a hall yeah. pass list, and it was like uh, Brad Pitt, the King, King, Clooney. Only that. Yeah, and then that you're specifically. Fine. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So her poor husband, desperately in love with her. But providing a very nice life for her, at which point she gets to start a salon. She becomes friends with Voltaire and Diderot and other thinkers of the day. And she is going to help them a lot once she's at court. And one of the big advantages of her marriage is her husband has a hunting lodge that is near where the king likes to hunt. So while the king is hunting, Mad and Pompadour does this cool thing where she drives by in a beautiful pink dress in a blue carriage or a blue dress in a pink carriage. And uh, the king sends her some venison. Of course. And also an invitation to a masked ball at the court of Versailles. So oh, you know your dress and carriage made an impression when you get venison and a party invite. You do, yeah. So uh, Madame Pompadour goes to this ball and uh, it's a ball where Louis XV has dressed up as a yew tree along with eight of his male friends because he doesn't want people to immediately know who he is. And everybody is very invested in figuring out who the king is at a mass ball. That is part of the fun. Yeah. But he's one of eight yew trees. <laughs> Meanwhile, Madame Pompadour dressed as Diana the Huntress. Oh. Yeah. As a little reminder of her hunting excursions, and uh, they sleep together for the first time on that night, um, and Madame Pompadour essentially never leaves. She figured out which yew tree he was. Oh, he revealed it to her. Yeah. Yeah, he was was in. (laughs) Um, uh, One of the things that I do think is sad is her husband uncharacteristically wrote her this letter just begging her to come back, saying that all was forgiven, like he didn't even care if she was sleeping with other people, just come back. And she showed it to Louis XV, like, ha-ha, isn't this funny? And Louis XV got really serious and said, your husband seems like he's a very decent man. Yeah. Yeah, he he was a very decent man. Now, Louis XV is also, I'm, I'm sure you've talked about him on Noble Blood, but he ends up being um, a king that that I have a lot of tenderness for. He is, in case, I mean, we haven't covered him specifically on Noble Blood. Oh, We've covered great. tangents. Um, but he is Louis XVI, a.k.a. Marie Antoinette's husband's grandfather. Father. And he was the great-grandson of Louis XIV. So he was never expected to be king, except when he was five, his entire family died of measles. And uh, he was saved by his governess, who sequestered him away. And uh, one of the reasons that was important was not just because measles can kill you, thank God for vaccines, 
But because the doctors were letting blood out of all his brothers, and they let out so much blood that it worsened their health and killed them. So his governess probably saved his life by hiding him away. But when he emerged, his entire family was dead, and he was going to be the new king of France. And one of the things I like about Louis XV is that it's so clear that he worked so hard. Um, Louis XIV, I think it's hard to argue that Louis XIV was at least a short-term genius. Um, yeah, a strategy, yes, strategy genius. Um, I think ultimately the notion of keeping every single noble at court destroyed the French countryside. And I think that was already happening by Louis XV's reign. People thought that being exiled from Versailles was a fate as bad as death. There it's was getting a, kicked off Twitter. Yeah, there was one noblewoman whose husband came to her to reveal that they were being exiled back to their massive, beautiful estate in the country. And um, she started crying as soon as she saw him. And she explained that that was because from the look on his his face, she assumed that their son had died. So uh, so it was very, very bad to have to leave Versailles. Yeah. But that did mean that the farmlands were not being taken care of in France. People were starting to starve to death because nothing was being farmed. You need a leader there. You, you need somebody there just kind of reminding people that they do have to farm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, obviously, you don't actually need that in modern society. Democracy is the way to go. Please don't let's return to any of this. But at the time, it did not make for a functional countryside. So... Uh, Louis XV did not really have any of his grandfather's short-term genius, though. But he started sitting in meetings from the time he was five. He would take his pet cat along with him, and he explained to everybody that his pet cat was his special advisor. Um, and he would, like, whisper little notes to his cat while he was listening. And... Um, just tried really hard to keep up with it. They talk about how one of the times he started crying in one of the meetings was when they revealed to him who he was going to be married to, and he realized that he was never going to get to marry for love. Um, and overall, just like a guy who was trying pretty hard. A guy trying his best. A guy trying his best. One of the other facts that I've always liked about him is that there was... An appointed time when the king would rise at Versailles, and other nobles would have the privilege of helping the king wake up. And in order of rank, right? In order of rank, yes. Uh, yes, so it would be a very special thing to get to hand the king, like, a towel <laughs> on his face in the morning. And uh, what Louis XV would do was he would wake up two hours before that, light his own fire, get his own room ready, try to take care of paperwork so he could get a jump on the day, then extinguish everything and pretend to go back to bed. Aww. And he would do the same thing late at night where nobles would put him to bed and then he would have to get up again. He's like, oh, I'm so sleepy. Sleepy. Oh, this was so great, everybody. Night, night. <laughs> um, so I've, I've always found that a very... I guess I find hard work kind of likable. Yeah. The other thing he was doing at night was slipping off to see his mistress. But for the first seven, at least seven years of his marriage, um, I think it was longer than seven years. Um, I think you might have, yeah, you would have, okay, hold on. I'm going to check when Louis XIV married. <laughs> Yeah, because Louis the Fifteenth. Uh, Louis the Fifteenth. sorry. It's so interesting the way that, that ritualized uh court structure forces 
even the people that benefits the most, which is the kings, into the most restrictive roles. It's like you have all the power, but you're still on a very limited track for what your daily existence is. You are. So there's some debates on the number, but people estimate that for around 10 years at least, he was totally loyal to his wife. Uh, he married Queen Marie. Marie, with a last name? Lencisa. I'm so sorry. I should know. It's Polish. But uh, he married Queen Marie, tried very hard to be loyal to her. She was, again, she was very religious and always trying to get people to play the 18th century equivalent of Settlers of Catan. Um, so, it sounds like fun. I would do it, Marie. No, for sure. Yeah. How bad could it be? But eventually, Louis XV did want somebody with a more dynamic personality. And he had a few mistresses before Madame Pompadour. But Madame Pompadour really starts bringing things to court life that nobody was bringing. She started a theater. She is friends with Voltaire and Diderot and other great writers of the time. She started having special dinners for Louis XV and all of her artist friends. And it's interesting to me that Louis XV loved being seated by artists at dinner yeah. and talking to them about art, but he did not love being seated by writers because he <laughs> knew they might write about him, yeah. and he did not want to drink with these people that's, and say something that they were immediately going to write in public. That's so funny. It's also how rich people love surrounding themselves with creatives. Yes. His traditionally and historically. Yes, absolutely. Because yes. it's the one thing money can't buy. It is. And Madame Pompadour opened up a theater at Versailles. I think it was Le Théâtre des Petits Cabinets. And uh, she performed all of the main female roles. Of course. And uh, she... But... It was incredibly coveted to get to act in the theater because they would have professional actors come and help the nobles. It would be like being in your high school play, but nobles would bend over backwards to get like a tiny, tiny speaking role. I mean, it sounds really fun. It does sound really fun. Um, or they would bribe Madame Pompadour's maid to get them an invitation so they could go and see one of these performances. Truly, if we were all like living at Versailles summer camp, mm -hmm and there was, like, a play going on, and, and like, professional actors were coming yeah. in to, like, help you and do it, yeah. like, that sounds so fun. Yes. Um, Madame, Madame Pompadour also had this huge list of rules for rules for being in the play. And there are things like you have to make every single rehearsal. Like, you cannot turn down any role, even if you think that role is unflattering. Um, and they're taking it really seriously. Yeah. Now, this was one of the things that started enraging the commoners. Of why are we paying for them to do theater summer camp at Versailles. That seems unnecessary to everyone who is increasingly facing food shortages. Yes. So that was one of the things that people immediately started getting angry about the idea of this royal mistress is bankrupting us. Yeah. But at the same time, Madame Pompadour was a huge patron of the arts. So she was patronizing the idea of China being made at Sevres instead of getting your China from places like Germany at the time. She was also commissioning every famous artist from this period. She's really responsible for the movement from the Baroque to the Rococo period. Yeah. And so you're going from kind of... If you sort of know the difference 
between those periods. I'm going to oversimplify it, but this sort of dark, heavy, heavy, uh, biblical, biblical imagery to, uh, I, I, girl on a swing. To a girl on a swing. Oh, and it's yes. also a little sexual. It's a li- it's sexy. It's fun. It, it contains elements of frivolity. It's yeah. more feminine. Um, and she also made pink a popular feminine color that people wanted to wear. And I'm going to embarrass myself in case this is a one of those historical misconceptions. Did the pompadour come from her hairstyle? It did indeed, yes. 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 So uh, there are so many things that she was doing. She learned how to cut gemstones when she was at Versailles. I would love to be a rich person with just infinite time for hobbies. She started engraving. Now, the only problem here is that Madame Pompadour was also in fairly fragile health. She had pretty much chronic bronchitis. And Louis XV was coming to her for sex up to nine times a day. Can we also say, just to point out, that this, like, girl with a million cool hobbies who's an artistic bohemian in ill health is really Manic Pixie Dream Oh, she's very Manic Pixie Dream uh, she, she might have originated it. She, she has bronchitis. She's coughing she's up coughing, blood. She's coughing all the oh, time. So glamorous. Um, she is not in great health. And Louis XV <laughs> has a massive sexual appetite. Nine times a day. Yeah. Um, now, at one point, she started trying to subsist on a diary of vanilla, truffles, and celery because she had heard that those were all things that would increase her libido. But uh, a friend of hers fortunately told her that this is going to kill you and it will not make you more able no. to have sex. Oh, uh, she, eating only those things I don't think would make me feel sexy. N- I mean, I like truffles. Yeah. I don't know. That would be cool. I'd eat truffles. But, <laughs> but she started exercising, which seemed to help a little bit. But I think somewhat fortunately for Pompadour, who could not keep up with this, after five years, the sexual relationship ended. But she was kept on at Versailles as a friend to the king. And I think it's very funny that when they made her this this sort of new official title, um, she changed all of the imagery in her room from being like cupids and depictions of love to depictions of beautiful friendship. And she gave a statue to the king. But if it is the statue I'm thinking of, it's a statue that represents the spirit of friendship, but the spirit of friendship has both of its breasts exposed yeah. and she's cupping them Yeah, him. as friends. As friends, like you do with your buddies. Yeah, I yeah. Do. sometimes you show your friends pictures of your boobs to be like, how do my boobs look now? They look great, right? See how I'm cupping them yeah. for you? Yeah. <laughs> Um, around this time, Louis XV didn't ever really take on another full-time mistress. He had a hunting lodge where he would keep young women who he was having sex with. And I think it was called the Parco Surf. So it's like he's not going to fall in love with these girls. And that was Madame Pompadour's comment at the time, yeah. that she wasn't afraid that some young girl with no education was going to take him away. But she was afraid that he would fall in love with another noble lady at the court. So better he be getting his physical needs met just by pretty young things. Yes. Um, One of the things that's so interesting is that this is also very similar to what happened to the queen. And the queen said with Madame Pompadour, if there has to be a royal mistress, better her than any other. And I think I remember even reading that Madame de Pompadour was, was very nice and kind to the queen. Oh, Madame Pompadour was thirsty for the queen's (laughs) approval. She was desperate for the queen to like her. It's so interesting because you see her handle Louis XV with 
just kind of a plum. Like it, it's going well. Um, she, you know, she wants him to love her very, very much. Some of her detractors said that her sickness was because keeping up an attitude of being madly in love every single day is exhausting on the human body. Yeah. But uh, she did love the king. But when it comes to the queen, you see her just bending over backwards to, like, invite the queen to every single performance that she's having at the theater. And the queen, like, kind of shows up sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but, she's like, look, I know what's going on here. I'll be a good sport. Yeah, it's fine. Yeah. She, she was always, like, picking out special gifts for the queen. And the reason that she was so nice to her was because the queen was supposed to acknowledge the royal mistress at yeah. some point. And usually queens were incredibly bitchy about this. Understandably. Um, uh, with, when Marie Antoinette met Madame du Berry, uh, she had to say something to her. And she just kind of snidely said, well, there are a lot of people at court today. Yeah, and at yeah. this time, just for context, Louis the Sixteenth, uh, Marie Antoinette's husband, never actually took a mistress, which is why it's sometimes I had one professor in college actually. He couldn't get it up, Dana. Well, yeah, it he took had, for he, he he had took years real sexual problems. Yeah, but I had a professor in college point out that arguably it damaged Marie Antoinette because there was no other woman to serve as a lightning rod for gossip and attention. And Madame Pompadour was that lightning rod yeah. for this is the woman who is bankrupting France. Yes, absolutely. And Madame de Berry um, was Louis XV's next mistress. Yes. Um, but Marie Antoinette was just the princess. But since she outranked her, <laughs> Marie, Madame de Berry couldn't even say hi unless Marie Antoinette said something first. Exactly. Yeah. So uh, when it was Madame Pompadour's time to meet Queen Marie, there was very little for them to talk about because Madame oh. Pompadour, as everybody kept pointing out, was bourgeois. She didn't know anybody at court. What were yeah. they possibly going to say to each other? And the queen really nicely had one friend in common with Madame Pompadour and asked if Madame Pompadour had seen that friend lately because she'd seen her at court. And uh, she was wondering how she was doing. And Madame Pompadour... Um, I imagine responded about how her friend was doing, but immediately afterwards fell to her knees and said that she, she was so grateful that she had such a kind and gracious queen, that she was going to do anything she could in this life to make the queen happy. And she never went back on this promise. And I honestly think it got to be a little bit much for the queen. <laughs> <laughs> she was the object of the unrequited affection. She was the object of the unrequited affection, yeah. and it was a little uncomfortable for her. <laughs> But that's very sweet. I, I respect that Madame de Pompadour is like, look, I get that this is the awkward situation. Mm -hmm. I am your, you But know. just so you know, I love you. Yeah, just so you know, we're good, to right? all my performances forever, right, besties? Besties? <laughs> I would rather, if I had to be a French mistress, I would rather be, be friends with the queen. Oh, absolutely, yeah. It makes your life so much um, easier. Well, the queen was treated very badly by Louis XV's prior mistresses. Oh. And it was probably um, stupid on their part yeah. uh, that because you know you would think that because you're sleeping with the king and he loves you you have some advantage over this like quiet religious woman who's just having children but you don't um she's seen them come and go she's seen them come and go so what happened toward the the end of Madame de Pompadour's life? Oh, unfortunately, Madame Pompadour was probably very responsible for the Seven Years' War, which was a disastrous war oh, on the part no. of France. And uh, it, it may be apocryphal, but Madame Pompadour became very good friends with Austrian diplomats and sort of forged an alliance between France and Austria 
Which, Here's the prime minister things. Yeah, of which uh, led to them engaging against Britain and Prussia in the Seven Years' War and just getting smashed. But they say that one of the reasons that she personally hated Prussians was because Frederick the Great referred to his dog as his pompadour. Oh, that's, that's mean. <laughs> it is mean. It is mean. So, uh, so yeah, that's not a good enough reason to fortune alliance with another country and then go to war No, with it d- doesn't end well for France. And it does not end well for France. And uh, then at 42, uh, Madame Pompadour passed away of pneumonia. Um, and... Uh, Louis the Fifteenth in that episode of um, of Doctor Who uh, sees her carriage going away in the rain, but he cannot attend his funeral. And one of the things that they do not incorporate into that Doctor Who is him turning around and showing his courtiers the tears streaming down his face Aww. and saying, "This is the only respect I am allowed to pay her." Wait, he wasn't allowed to go to her funeral. Nope. Why? Um, uh, I rules of Versailles. But he's the king. Yeah, but um, she... It would have been an embarrassment. Yeah. 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 Uh, yeah, but she, you know, she lived out her life at Versailles. I think one of the lovely things is that she and Louis the Fifteenth, even if, you know, he's also sleeping with younger girls towards the end of their relationship, really did have this meeting of minds. They were ethically non-monogamous. They were, I mean, <laughs> like many ethically non-monogamous <laughs> relationships, it seems like the man got to be a lot more ethically non-monogamous <laughs> than the woman who was just kind of going along with this. <laughs> but um, At least she was aware of it. She was, she was definitely aware of it. There were very cruel rumors at the time that she was orchestrating all of this for oh, him. Oh, yeah, that she was sort of being that, a madame. Yeah, exactly, that she was procuring these young girls. I don't think it was that difficult to procure young women. Who wanted to sleep with the king yes. for advantage and yes. power. Yeah. Exactly, yeah. Um, but uh, they got to have, like, these nice little dinner parties at their home. Louis Fifteenth would make the coffee himself. They got to talk to interesting people. And uh, she got to have this very creative life where she brought a lot of art and spirit to Versailles. That is what we associate with it now. And I also, I think I remember reading that she was very interested in gardening. She was, Which yeah. is such a Nancy Myers hobby. Uh, Madame Pompadour was interested in everything. Yeah. I think it's also one of the things that... I like about her where I think now we live in this era of kind of cool girls yeah. who are just like um, like to be a sexy girl is like to never smile yeah. um, and I love that Madame Pompadour thing was like today I'm going to learn to be a gem cutter <laughs> honestly if there was some girl on Instagram with a cool haircut who was like Carving, carving gems, carving yeah. gems. I'd be like, oh my god, that's, that's so amazing. cool! Yeah. If you are a gem carver listening to this podcast, please we, let me know. We love that. If you're a gem carver who's also started like a very highly ranked theater <laughs> that you're forcing people to perform in, and the queen will show up for sometimes if she's not busy playing <laughs> yeah. her sad card game. <laughs> Yeah, uh, yeah, I love that the thing that was so about feeling about Madame Pompadour was that she did seem to have a passion and an interest in everything. She seems like exactly the type of person you would want to invite to your parties. She seems really fun. Really yeah. good at parties. She seems really good at parties. She seems like somebody who also... Uh, uh, maybe this is unfair, but, like, she's really smart. Yeah. Um, and Louis the Fifteenth. 
nice guy, but nobody thinks that Louis the Fifteenth is a genius. Right? No, I've no. never heard that characterization. No, okay. Um, and I love that the longest relationship of his life was with this woman who was really smart, except for the Seven Years' War. She should not have gotten them into that one. Terrible idea. Yeah, she tried her best. <laughs> uh, so, Jennifer, where can the good people find you if they want to hear more oh. about you or anything you're writing? Um, well, I used to be on Twitter at Jen Ashley Wright, but not really anymore. It doesn't seem like a fun place to be. But you can find me on my website at jenashleywright.com. Or you can buy Madame Ristel in your local bookshop or on Amazon. You should absolutely buy Madame Ristel and Jennifer's other books. This is a personal recommendation from me. Jennifer, thank you so much. Oh, this was such a pleasure. What a pleasure. I love this. Will you come back soon? Anytime. Absolutely. <laughs> Noble Blood is a production of iHeartRadio and Grim and Mild from Aaron Mankey. Noble Blood is created and hosted by me, Dana Schwartz, with additional writing and researching by Hannah Johnston, Hannah Zwick, Mira Hayward, Courtney Sender, and Lori Goodman. The show is edited and produced by Noemi Griffin and Rima Ilkayali, with supervising producer Josh Thane and executive producers Aaron Mankey, Alex Williams, and Matt Frederick. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robay, And me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. I am so excited about this podcast, The Bright Side. You guys are giving people a chance to shine a light on their lives, shine a light on a little advice that they want to share. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side.